It is a joy to get to open the Word of God with you. If you have a copy of the Scriptures, please turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. We concluded our series in 2 Peter last week, and we're starting Advent next week. And so we had this opportunity to preach one message as a standalone on the week of Thanksgiving. And you can imagine my struggle when you have the whole Bible in front of you. It's like having a, a, a cookbook with a recipe for every meal in the world, and you're having people over for dinner. What do you choose? Where can you go? You have a lot that you could be thankful for, many places in the Word where you could go. But we're coming off of this series where we've been talking about our uh, union with Christ and knowing Him and how knowing Christ leads to a new and a godly life. And we've got baptisms today, or baptism with my son Isaac being baptized, and just so many reasons to be thankful. And in the book of Colossians, Thanksgiving is a prominent theme. You'll see it mentioned over and over again, different reasons that we have to be thankful. And it's no surprise that Thanksgiving is a theme in the book of Colossians when Colossians is all about the preeminence of Christ and who Jesus is and what he has done. And so we of all people have the most reasons to be filled with thanksgiving. And so and there, there are similarities between where we've been and what we're studying here. Uh, one of those similarities is no surprise where the true gospel was being preached. There were false teachers trying to lace in false gospels as well. And so the Colossians were battling false teachers who were saying that there was some other kind of fullness outside of Christ, and that in addition to having Christ, Jewish false teachers would teach these man-made traditions and rules saying, yeah, that's, that's fine, but you also need, in order to fully experience Christ and fully walk with Him, you need to follow these rules like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And so Paul is coming to say, no, 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 no. In Jesus, we have all the fullness of God. And he is preeminent over all that he has made. All things have been made through him and for him. And you have died with Christ and you've been raised to a new and holy life. Why would you submit again to these rules that are trying to get to God from the outside when you've been brought inside by the work of Christ? And so in chapters one and two in Colossians, Paul is giving us these descriptions of what Christ has done for us in the gospel. And in most of Paul's letters, you'll see this, where the first half is kind of dedicated to uh, the indicatives of the gospel, a description of the gospel, who Jesus is and what he's done, and just glorying in all that he has accomplished for us. And then usually there's this pivot point that in the middle of Paul's letters, whether it's Ephesians or Colossians or there are plenty of other examples where he turns from glorying in who Jesus is and what he's done to now in light of who he is and in light of what he, he has done, what are the demands on us? So he goes from description of the gospel to the demands of the gospel in living a new and a holy life. And so in chapter 2, Paul has just finished saying, if you have received Christ the Lord, so walk in him. And he, he describes that, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So there you go. That, and again, this is kind of like a thesis statement over what he's about to go into from chapter 2, verse 6 to the beginning of chapter 4. And so he's saying, look, you've received Christ the Lord, so walk in him. And the rest of chapter 2 is not like these false teachers teach not according to what they say about how to walk in him, but in this way. So if we've received Christ the Lord, how should we walk in him abounding in thanksgiving? That's the question for today, and Colossians 3 gives us the answer. So in honor of the reading of God's word, I'm going to ask that you stand with me. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1 through verse 17. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Let's pray. Well, Father, would you send forth your Spirit now as we come to your living word? Would you anoint the preaching of your word? Would you anoint the hearing of your word? May we receive it with humility and gladness. I pray that you would come and transform us by the renewing of our minds and that you would help us in light of your word to live the new and the holy life that you have called us to, doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to you through him. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you can probably tell that if we were preaching through Colossians as a series, this passage might get five or six or uh, 50 messages. And so we're not going to be able to treat it in as much detail as we would normally like to. Um, But we're going to spend the majority of our time in the beginning parts, and then we're going to let verses 5 through 17 back clean up. So if you are one of those people who tries to like pace the sermon and to figure out like, oh my word, if he spent this long on chapter, on like verse one through four, we're going to be here for a while, then I'm just going to go ahead and put your hearts at rest. We are going to be here for a while, but not for the reasons why you think. Um, So one of the greatest gifts of our lives is, uh, I didn't expect, I should not use family members as sermon examples because it chokes me up. Um, when, When we got to bring home our son Asher, from the hospital. I didn't know that I was going to get to have him forever. But when we got to adopt him into our family, I got to give him my name as his middle name. And in a real way, Asher received a new identity and actually a new life than he otherwise would have had if he was not adopted into a family where Christ is treasured and God's word is honored. And it is glorious to think about uh, what God has done for him by his grace. And it is a picture of the gospel. And I want you to imagine similarly, if we had had the same kind of adoption, but maybe with a, a teenage or even college age student, and he had had a troubled life, marred by his own sin, sought pleasure everywhere where he could find it, had a criminal record from stealing, and just lived life kind of in a self-protective, I'm going to get mine, protect mine kind of way. And then he was, his criminal record was expunged, and he was completely forgiven of everything that he had done because we had paid to make for things, make it right, or somebody else had served his crime for him, and he was brought into our family and was given everything he needed for a new life, a new name, a new identity, a new home, new resources, a new family. 
And you can imagine, I mean, this is kind of a storied illustration, right? You see this in movies or different illustrations, how, how often they have a trouble adjusting to a new way of life and resorting back to old habits or old ways. And usually it, it was because they had a hard time receiving grace and a hard time believing that this new reality was actually real for them. And so often this is us as we have been in the beginning of Colossians, Paul's talked about he has transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our trespasses. That is your reality this morning. Regardless of how guilty you already feel for all your sins that you committed this morning or this week, that in Jesus we have redemption the forgiveness of our trespasses by God's grace. We are not who we were. He has brought us into a new reality. But a failure to understand or embrace that new reality can lead to us failing to have a new way of thinking and therefore a new way of living. And that's where Paul is going to get with us. Is he's starting out with, this is your reality, and so you need to have a new way of thinking that results in a new way of living. And when we get out, when we forget these new realities that Christ has purchased for us, we saw this in 2 Peter chapter 1. You get short-sighted, you forget to add to your faith these virtues that he has supplied for you. So I want to have as a banner over our time this morning, these are realities that Christ has purchased for you and they belong to you now. So I just want you to know that you walked into this building way richer than you could possibly imagine. Way more blessed by God and transformed and given a new identity than you knew walking in. And what we are mainly talking about is receiving, not earning, not striving, but receiving and living in light of a gift. So that's the first uh, section of our time together is living with this new reality. So it's a new reality. You see this in verse 1 of chapter 3. Paul says, if or since then you have been raised with Christ. Now remember, he's saying then, like if then in light of what we just now said. So he's reaching back into chapter 2 where he had said, in Christ... You were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. He's referring to the cross of Christ. This is not referring to the Jewish practice of circumcision in its physical practice, but what it was always a symbol or a picture of, which is the circumcision of our hearts where our old self was cut away in the cross of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. That is past tense language. I want you to hear this. You have been crucified with Christ. You have been raised with him. Here again in verse 3, Paul says, You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. If that sounds like a mystery, it's because it is. You died with Christ. In verse 4, he says, When Christ, who is our life, appears, we also will appear with him in glory. One of the wonders and the bounties of the gospel is the reality of our union with Christ. In the gospel, the gospel is not just the message of how Christ died for you, but how you died with him. And the old you passes away, and you're raised in newness of his life now as a completely new creation. It is not just, well, I believe in this thing that happened somewhere out there outside of me, but in a real way. We are brought by faith into him with a covenant oneness. This is what marriage is meant to portray. At the end of Ephesians 5, Paul talks about, how a husband ought to love his wife as Christ loves the church. And he talks about the oneness between a husband and wife. And he says, this reality is speaking about Christ and his covenant people, the church. He's not saying you are individually the brides of Christ. He's saying we collectively as his church have been made into the bride of Christ and are brought into him with covenant 
oneness. So remember in Colossians 1, Paul says he's transferred us from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of God's beloved son. Or the way he says it in Romans chapter 5 is that we were in Adam as the offspring of Adam. Adam sinned, and in a very real spiritual way, you were in him. And when he sinned, all of his offspring were born with his same spiritual DNA. And so you were born dead in sin. You were born with your heart turned inward on yourself, with selfish desires that wanted what you want and despised authority. And that is how you're born. Uh, If you have children, you know this, right? It didn't take long to figure this out. So when God gives us the gift of repentance and uh, and turning us to Christ, he unites us to Christ by faith, and he transfers us from being in Adam to being in Christ. This is a huge reality for you to understand if you're going to live in the new identity that God has given you, that in a real way, just as Adam was your father and you belonged in his lineage, he transfers you from being in Adam to in Christ. And just as Scripture says how we were in Adam when Adam sinned, by this miracle of God's grace, when you place your trust in Jesus, God transfers you from being in Adam through death, you're raised to be in Christ. The old you, the old you that had Adam's nature, that lived in Adam's sin, is crucified with Christ, and you're raised in union with Christ to live a new and a holy life. Just as we were in Adam when he sinned, so the Bible says that by faith, you were in Christ when he died on the cross and when God raised him from the dead. Uh, I have as an example, and you can see this in verse 9 through 11, and I'm going to use these examples in a a moment. Verse 9 through 11, Paul's saying, this is a reality that has happened to you, okay? I'll go ahead and get my my jackets ready. I try to pick jackets um, for for the old self that I don't wear often so that you guys wouldn't think that I was walking around sinful like in my regular jacket. So, this is how we are born. We're born in Adam. This is my, this is my old company, old real estate jacket. And um, we are born in Adam. You come out of the womb not actually wearing a jacket, but you get the picture, right? Like this is who I am. And even the good things that I try to do are tainted with me, my sin, my motive, motivation for my own self-seeking. And in verse 9 through 11, Paul says, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. He is talking about life in the new humanity that Jesus is creating for himself, in the new covenant community here. The things that used to mark you, the things that used to define you, the thing that used to be your primary identity have given way to Christ. Christ is all and in all. You have put off the old self with its practices and you have put on the new self. So this has already happened if you've placed your trust in Christ. That this is what has happened to you. You're kind of reading a biography of yourself, of what your story has been. Galatians 5, 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have, past tense, crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So when we come to Christ and we repent of our sin, God takes off the old Adamic nature. So that's, in case you're confused, that's Adam, right? Adamic nature, that our old self that is marked by self-orientation and sin, we put off and he gives us a new and a holy life where we come into Christ and we've put on the new self which is being created after the image of our creator Christ Jesus. So we are we're given a new wardrobe so to speak. I'm gonna put this back on later. I don't want to can I not preach in a jacket? I'm not taking off the new self. I'm just I'm just not preaching in a jacket for right now. So he says we have died. Now this is glorious. If you I want you to consider what has happened. 
The wages of sin is death. And your sin has been judged in the flesh of Christ. You have already experienced the judgment that you are going to experience because Christ took it for you and in the mind and heart of God, in actuality, in truth, in ways that you cannot comprehend or see, you have already died. You've already experienced the judgment. The old you is dead and is gone. And Paul says that not only is the implication that, that you've already experienced all the judgment that you deserve has already been experienced by Christ, but you are free and must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is why in Colossians 2, he's saying, why are you still being dictated to by false teachers as though you're still living in the world, as though you're still subject to trying to get to God from the outside when you've already been brought into the house? You're not living in the world like they are. You're not outside the house, so don't try to let, don't go after them and their rules and try to approach God by these man-made traditions and rules rather than according to Christ. So he says, we have died and we have been raised with Christ. We've been seated with him in the heavenly places. The implication of being raised with Christ is not just that we're alive, but the same spirit who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. You've been raised with him and seated with him in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And you've been given his Holy Spirit so that you can live a new and a holy life. All of this is already true of you. You don't have to do anything to earn this from God. This is his gift that he has lavished on you as a gift of his grace. So that now indeed Christ is our life itself. The old, independent self-oriented you has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that we live, we now live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. This is reality, and it's hidden. It's hidden. It's so often hidden from our own view. When you wake up and you look in the mirror, you don't see yourself as you actually are in the sight of God in the same way as he's actually declared over your life. And other people don't either. And so it's just so easy to get lost into the Disneyland, the carnival world here, and to forget these heavenly realities that are true of you, that you have been united with Christ in his death and you're not your own anymore, and that you've been raised as a new creation so you look exactly like your neighbors who don't know Christ on the outside, but inside, if people could see, you are a son and daughter of God. In Romans 8, Paul says that creation longs for the revealing of the sons of God. When the veils come off and you actually see what God has done and who he's making you to be. In 1 John 3, he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are now. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be yet has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. This is glorious reality. When Christ appears, then you will appear too. Is that staggering? When he appears in glory, then all of a sudden you will appear and it'll be made evident what he was doing this whole time in you, working in you for his good pleasure. So we have this new reality and in light of this new reality, we have to have a new mindset. So in verse two, he says, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Your life flows from where you set your mind. Your mind, it's kind of that whole you are what you eat. You, you, experience in this life, you experience this all the time, whether or not you realize it or not, right? The, the music that you listen to and then it just gets stuck in your head on repeat. And you're like, man, why am I thinking about this so much, right? Why am I thinking about college football so much? Well, it could be because you listened to that podcast and watched that thing and did that thing. and did. So you, you are actually shaped and your life is shaped by where you fix your mind, because where you fix your mind shapes your desires, and your desires shape your life. 
And so he's saying, if you have been raised with Christ and you have this new identity and this new reality marks your life where you do not belong to yourself, but you belong to Christ Jesus, then set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. We have been given the mind of Christ as a gift. Again, this is all grace. You have the mind of Christ, Paul says. And he says, let this mind be in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It belongs to you. That you can have this mind that is fixed on him and on these realities that are yours. And it is yours to take up as a gift. And if you don't do so, you will die. In Romans chapter 8, Paul says that those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. And later in the book, he says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewal of your mind. And so where you fix your mind is the fountainhead of your life. That's why later Paul's going to say things like, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. Meditate much here and have your heart and your life and your desires and all the activity of your life flow out of a renewed mind, a mind that's conformed to the mind of Christ in his word. So he's saying concentrate on, look up to Christ and these heavenly realities. Seek Christ and fix your heart and your eyes and your mind on him and not the things that are on earth. So I would ask you this question in a, in a, in a world that is consumed with entertainment, with always having to be occupied with our phones, with our default being, now, I want you to understand this. Look, this message is coming through, God, through me, spearing me in the heart, and then coming to you, okay? This is all for all of us. Where do we fix our minds? Now, he says your life is hidden with Christ in God. One of the implications of that is that we are in Christ and now we relate to everything through him. He is life. So he takes and he sanctifies the things that we do in the world. So this is not saying stop working your job that looks like it's not spiritual. That's not what he's saying. You, you actually do have to set your mind on the things that you're doing during the day. Otherwise, you're not going to be very good at it, right? Philadelphia's like, measurements aren't spiritual. I don't, you're not going to want them doing your built-ins anymore, right? <laughs> but what he's saying is, look, you have these new realities, and Christ is your life, and so now we relate to everything through him. We don't enjoy or pursue anything in the world for its own sake. But we pursue them through Christ for his sake. We are now submitted to him to live in a new and a holy life. And so he is my master. He shapes what I fix my mind on, what I, what I set my heart to do. And you're going to see this as we get into a new lifestyle. It takes meditating in God's word to actually steer your life to live like a Christian. And so he's saying, come back again and again and again. This is Deuteronomy 6, where he's calling people to meditate in God's word day and night. This is the Christian life. You know, we, we do such a good job at kind of sticking God his space in the morning where you like stay there, you know, if he's there at all. Instead of as you rise up, as you lie down, as you go about the way, set your mind on the things above and have your heart shaped by the word of Christ dwelling richly in your mind and in your heart. So you have this new reality and then a new mindset. This is a way of life, a way of thinking that shapes your life and that leads to, lastly, a new lifestyle. So as we fix our eyes on Jesus, by faith, we are laying hold of, of what he has declared to be true already as our reality, right? We're not, we are not twisting God's arm to give us something that he has not already made true 
and that he's declared to be true over us. He has given us the gift of his Holy Spirit where we read in 2 Peter, he's given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. There is nothing that he calls you to do or a way to live that he has not provided for in the cross of Christ and by the power of his Holy Spirit. And so I want you to consider this because I think sometimes people have a hard time understanding. So is it rules or is it not rules? Because it seems like there's a lot of commandments. But Paul has just finished saying in chapter 2, don't let people deceive you and seek to approach God by human rules that have the appearance of godliness, but they have no power of stopping the actual indulgence of your flesh. They're powerless. So all these things that look like self-harm or asceticism or man-made rules, legalisms, they have, they're powerless to actually making you godly from the inside out. But that does not in turn mean that rules are bad. John writes, the Lord's commandments are not burdensome. They are a joy to follow and a joy to live into. So right after Paul says, don't let people, don't be held captive to these human rules saying, don't handle this, don't taste that, don't touch that. He proceeds to give us in chapter 3, I counted at least 18 instructions, 18 demands. So he's not saying there are no rules. There are no commandments. He's saying don't listen to their rules, but there is a way of living in the house where you have been adopted and brought into the household of faith. You have a new and a different life where you would tell that adopted son, you're a wedding hill now, and here's what that means. Now, examples fall short because where they've only just been brought into the house and their physical environment has changed, we have had a renovation in our hearts been made new, been made alive, been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he says, this is how you live in the house, son, daughter. You look at verses 5 through 7. Our former manner of self-saturated living, marked by lust and greed and filthy talk and slander and gossip, belongs in Adam and not in Christ. And so the reality is now, that you're a Christian, before this was your only option, this old nature. Even your good things that you tried to do were filthy rags before a holy God. But when you come to God and he gives you a new identity and a new wardrobe and makes you a new creation, now you, in a mystery, are living in the already of being completely forgiven and freed from sin's penalty, the penalty of your sin has been judged in the flesh of Christ. Hallelujah. But we are in the process of being saved. And so you have the option of what wardrobe you're going to wear today. And you can feel it. You can feel it. When we are freed from the penalty of sin and the reign of sin, sin will not have mastery over you because you're not under law but under grace. And still, we're not freed yet from its presence, from the temptation of it. And so, because we've been united with Christ and buried with him and raised with him, Paul writes in Romans 6, so this is kind of like this thesis statement. I love, sometimes Paul will write things in summary fashion. I want you to get the summary fashion and we'll go into detail, okay? So he says in Romans 6, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You must. He's already done it for you, but you have to do it, believer. You have to consider it so by faith. That is a faith language. Reckon it so. Count it to be true. You have died, and you've been risen to life in Christ. And so the implication, so let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will not have dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. And so this, this wardrobe language is the way that Paul writes a lot about our new identity in Christ. He says it in Ephesians 4, put off the old, put on the new. He's saying it here. One of the clearest is in Romans 13 verse 14. He says, 
Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. If you have young boys, now it could be true of young girls. I just hadn't seen it yet. I have five, five boys and two girls, and the girls are not old enough to make the same foolish mistakes that the boys are. All right, so I, this is probably unfair to little boys. But I found with boys that you have to spell things out very concretely, right? If I tell Selah, hey, it's cold outside, go get dressed, then she's going to put like two and two together, and she's going to do the next 10 steps that are required to be able to go outside, warm, and enjoy a nice afternoon. With the boys, I have to say, I want you to take off your pajamas. Then I want you to put on your shorts and a shirt. And then I want you to put on socks before you put on your boots. And then I want you to put on snow bibs and a jacket. And then I want you to not forget your gloves. And I want you to go to the bathroom before you go outside so that we're not having to take all this off and put it all back on immediately following this. And I have to spell out each little step. And so in Romans 13, verse 14, Paul's saying, look, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh with regard to its lust. In Colossians chapter 3, he's like, let me tell you what I'm talking about when I say, I want you to put off the old and put on the new. I'm going to spell it out for you so that you don't miss what I am saying here. And so the first thing about this new lifestyle is we have to put off Adam to get violent with sin. So Paul highlights selfish desires. Um, In verse 5, he's talking mainly about sexual license and impurity that marks the life of those who were alienated from God and hostile to God before. And so he has five different ways of saying sexual sin or carnal appetites or lusts or cravings or greed. So you can see that in verse 5. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. It is all self-oriented, greedy living that wants to seek its own pleasure. That, that language for sexual immorality is this grab bag term that's anything related to sexual immorality. And so it includes pornography or lustful looking. We're talking about anything. And he's saying, believer, this is not you anymore. You have been given a new identity. You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And so I want you to lust as much as a dead man. You're dead. Dead men don't lust, so don't do it, right? But he doesn't just say don't do it and then leave you powerless not to do it. He says don't do it, and then he gives you the word of God, the sword of the Spirit, and the Spirit of God himself to say, go live like me, and I'll empower you to do it. And you have to make the choice. So you have to know sin to be deadly and put sin to death in you. Tim Challies said that just a single sin left in your life is as dangerous as a single rattlesnake left in your bed. Not a very comforting thought. But we need to be be awakened to how deadly sin actually is. Sometimes I think we'll think, well, I, I'm working on it. I've got so many things else in my life that I'm working on. I'm just going like, to let this sin go over here, and we'll get back to it later. Just a little rattlesnake. But we don't do little rattlesnakes in my house. I don't do that, right? I would not do that. Romans 8, 13, Paul says, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So that's why Paul is using this violent language with sin. Don't make peace with sin. Treat sin like a rattlesnake in your house. When you see it, chop off its head. Get serious with sin. It's like John Owen said famously, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. There's no neutrality with sin. We see it as it is. We recognize that it belongs to our old manner of living, our old way of life, life before we came into the household of faith. And so we put it off and we put on the Lord Jesus. Verse 7, he says, In these two you once walked when you were living in them. So this is so hopeful to those who are outside of Christ. You used to live this way. These things used to mark and define your life, but you put it off and you put on what was new. And so, again, he's got five ways of saying put off these attitudes that lead to abusive speech or critical speech or filthy language, right? So wrath and malice and this filthy language. 
You've been given a new heart. And Jesus said that what comes out of your mouth flows from your heart. So it should reflect what's in your heart. And if the word of Christ is flowing, is dwelling richly in you, guess what's coming out of your mouth? And so what comes out of our mouth is not the main problem. It's just a thermometer telling us what's in our hearts, which is convicting when you have things come out of your mouth. And so I I want you to have over all of this. This is what I always break it down to for my kids. When you find failings in yourself, take them to Jesus. Confess them to him and ask him for help. That's what you have to remember this. When we get, we're going straight to the imperatives of the gospel right now and giving these commands, you have to remember all he said in Colossians 1 and 2. He's removed your transgressions from you. We said it in our uh, assurance of pardon. He's given us the Holy Spirit, a new and a holy life. And so now I'm free when I'm grumbling to myself and so full of self-pity. And I start lashing out at my family or my children and I blame it on being tired instead of being sinful. And I see those things in myself. When I sin, I have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. I go to him. I confess them to him. And then I ask him for help. And then I go to my family and I confess it to them. And I say, this is not who Jesus is. Let's together put off what was old and put on what is new. And that ordering is important. Just like I would spell it out with my kids, right? I say, you have to take off what is old, right? You can't just brush it under the rug and be like, all right, well, I'm going to try better next time. And then leave all this unforgiveness, all this bitterness, all this sin that has gone unconfessed and undealt with. That is like us going to play pickup basketball and getting super nasty and sweaty and then me going on a date afterwards and being like, I'm sure she won't notice and just putting on (laughs) what's new over top, right? You can't do that. You actually have to take off what is old. Confess your sins before God and before people and put it to death, put it away and put on the Lord Jesus. And so that's our last Kind of in this new lifestyle, we had to put off what is old, what belongs to Adam's nature, what belongs to our old self, knowing that we've died, but we've been raised to a newness of life. And so we have to put on Christ, which is literally the same as saying, be who he has made you to be, right? You, this is not in yourself. I'm not saying, hey, just be yourself and you'll be super spiritual. I'm saying he has, you have died, And your life is hidden with Christ in God. And he has raised you to be a new creation, and so be one. And that new creation is dressed in this. I'm going to stop putting on and off jackets. I thought I was going to do it the whole time. I'm just not going to do it. But just imagine I was putting on this, okay? Wear this. It's him. But this this jacket, it's Jesus. It's like you put it on, and it's powerful. It's not looking for some righteousness outside of Christ. He's saying... I have given you myself. Be filled with me. Wear me. Well, what does that look like? How do I, how do we do that? Well, if you act in keeping with who you are, you put on the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 12, he has, again, five ways of describing this new and holy life. So there's kind of five ways he was describing sexual licentiousness and greediness and self-seeking. And then five ways of describing filthy language or language that was gossipy or talking about other people. Uh, And then now he's saying, here's five ways of being like Christ, that you put on compassionate hearts. You put on kindness and humility, meekness and patience. You bear with one another. Now, Again, if we were doing a sermon studies, we would break down all of these, dive into them, and soak them up. This is why you should go to community group and talk about it. Go talk about it tomorrow. Go talk about it Tuesday or Wednesday and say, what does this mean? How do we do this together? But you just think about putting off and putting on. It, this is where you have this word dwelling in you richly, and as you're going about your day, this has helped me this week. As I've, I've walked around kind of stewing or self-seeking or impatient or angry, and it's like, Put off wrath and malice. Put on patience. So, you know what I do? You know what that putting off and putting on looks like? Confessing it and asking for help. 
I just stop in that moment like, God, you're right. God, please forgive me. Oh, my word, this is so hard. I'm so selfish. I'm so impatient. Please forgive me and help me. And then I go in and I make it right and I put on the fruit of God's Holy Spirit. Bearing with one another is challenging. You know, it kind of just means tolerating one another. (laughs) It's a good word for the church. It means that you're putting up with each other's weaknesses and sins and love covers them. You don't even address every single one, every single thing. You are just, man, that really hurt my feelings. That was really harsh. That was really, they've just completely ignored my text message. They just didn't show up again. They didn't, I asked for help and nobody responded. I would fill in the blank. Man, I get stuck in a conversation and it's like, all, they never have asked me a question. They just only talk about themselves. Well, guess what? You forbear with one another and you forgive each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Unforgiveness is not an option for a believer in Jesus Christ. You think about the ways that you have been most wrong. Unforgiveness, we've talked about this many times as a church. Unforgiveness is not condoning what other people have done or saying that what they did was okay. Unforgiveness is more of a vertical transaction than it is a horizontal one where we receive forgiveness from God, and I know and believe that what he has forgiven me of is infinitely worse than anything that anybody has done to me. And so I take the forgiveness from him, and I give it away. Well, they don't deserve it. Well, same. And we we bend it out. We must forgive. He says, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This is the chief of the virtues, it's the first mentioned of the fruit of God's Holy Spirit in our lives, and it's impossible to do in our own strength. If you're just going to boil down what is so hard about the Christian life, you just say, we're just all bad at loving people. Some of you are more sanctified than I am, and you're better at it. But what you're better at is yielding to Christ in you. But none of this is generated on our own. And so he's saying, you have to put it on. This belongs to Christ, and you choose it. But what's amazing is you have it to put on. He's bought it for you. This is not you trying to go manufacture something like, I'm just not good at that. Yeah, no, none of us are. But he supplied it to you by his spirit. And so we must put it on, that humble sacrifice that gives and gives again. We must consider ourselves, so you look at the language of dead and alive, right? You must consider yourself dead to your own rights, your own time, your own convenience, and we must put on humble sacrifice that gives and gives again. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap up two minutes on this last part, so um, it's time for the kids to come up if they haven't already. I think they are. Um, he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. So he's saying literally, let the peace of Christ be the umpire of your life. Let, it, let his peaceableness mark you. And you've been united to Christ and given, been given peace with God. And so you ought to let that same peacemaking mark your life. And he just adds in there for our week three times at the end of this chapter, be thankful with thanksgiving. Be thankful. Be thankful. Because if you think about it, I've, I meditated on this this week in light of thanksgiving, and I'm thankful for these kind of holidays or moments to celebrate things that we should already be celebrating anyways. Have you been celebrating the fact that Christ is raised from the dead since Easter? (laughs) It should be a daily reality for you, where you're rejoicing in the resurrection of Christ. And we rejoice in the incarnation of Christ, that the Son of God who dwelled from all of eternity, who created all things, became a man for us. We're about to celebrate that. We should celebrate Him and His humanity and his sacrifice for us all the time. And so we should be thankful all the time. But I'm thankful for Thanksgiving to remind us, hey, we have so much to be thankful for. But I don't mean that in some, like, American blessing kind of way, which is appropriate. Like, we have so much to be thankful for. But I mean, if we truly understand who we are and have the humility remembering what we actually deserve, the kind of posture before the Lord that weeps when you read, in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And you think, me? 
You know how sometimes you'll be reading and you'll just be reading something that you've already read plenty of times before and all of a sudden God will arrest you with something and it hits you. And so thankfulness has to be rooted in this kind of humble posture before the Lord that is, doesn't feel entitled to any of his gifts, that is staggered and blown away by the reality that I've died with Christ and I've been raised with him and that I've been forgiven of my sins, and that he's given me the Holy Spirit to live a new and a holy life, and I have you as friends to follow Jesus with. And I consider who I am, and it just results in this staggered, blown away, humbled gratitude for the magnitude of his kindness and his gifts. And I would point you and your community groups to study and press into. This is an exhortation to the community of faith we have this new reality and this new mindset, part of our new lifestyle is, and, and how we set our minds on things above, is letting the word of Christ, the gospel of Christ, dwell in you richly. We don't even have time to unpack it. It's torture to me. But the, the simple question, does it? Does the gospel word of the Lord Jesus Christ dwell in your heart richly, making you to sing? It gives you a song that the world can't touch, where we sing together psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and I make room to teach others and to admonish one another. So I welcome your admonishing because the word of Christ is our authority, and we all are seeking to have it dwell richly in us. And so when I don't or I live out of keeping with the word of Christ, you come and admonish me, and instead of me getting defensive or self-protected, I take off what is self-oriented and I put on the Lord Jesus and I say, I receive your admonishment because the wounds of a friend are better than the kisses of an enemy. And I receive this. I want the word of Christ to dwell in me and reign in me. And where it is not, I want you to show me and tell me. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. I don't know if you saw this in verse 17, but he says, whatever you do three different times. (laughs) He's trying to make sure you don't miss this. He says, whatever you do, and then he says in word or in deed, which happens to encompass everything that you could do. And then he says, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so he's saying, with the character, in the attitude, in a way that honors him and is in keeping with who he is and these heavenly realities, do everything in his name with a spirit of thanksgiving to God the Father through him. He is the way that we approach the Father. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. God has knit us together in him and united us with him by faith. And so this is the first mention of the name of Jesus since chapter 2, verse 6. I told you, if you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. How do we do that? Well, here you go. Bookend. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's your new reality. Here's your new mindset. Here's your new lifestyle. Put off your old self that belongs to your old manner of life and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on the new self and do it day after day. Confess it. Ask for help. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly.